You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. We're in, I believe, our 28th or 29th week in our series through the book of Acts. If you're visiting with us, what we like to do about 90, 95% of the time is uh, preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, because we feel like that's the best way for us to study Scripture together. And we are going to be in Acts chapter 19 today, and we're going to start in verse 9. And basically where we're at is we are in really towards the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, we got done with his first missionary journey a few weeks ago, and now we're, we're closing down his second missionary journey. If you guys could put that map up for me. This is where we've been so far. He started over here in Antioch. He goes to Tarsus. He goes to Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, checks on all those churches that he planted uh, in his first missionary trip. And then he moves over to Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth is where he was last week. He's starting all these churches. It's up and down. It's an emotional roller coaster for Paul. And now he ends up in a city called Ephesus. I used to call this city Ephesus. And that's cool because we're in cross, but we can call it whatever we want. Amen, y'all. And so this is Ephesus, though. And this is one of the largest cities that Paul will ever visit. Uh, It's the longest ministry stint that he has in any city. In Corinth, he stayed a year and a half. Uh, In Ephesus, he's going to stay about two years. And if by way of preface, I could kind of set this city up for you and let you know what it's kind of like, if you'll allow me to do so. Ephesus, geographically, was a city that was very important. It sat alongside the Aegean Sea and the mouth of the Caister River. It also sat uh, close to the intersection of two very important mountain passes. And I tell you all that to say this city was a major economic hub for all of the known world. Uh, For our purposes today, what you need to know, though, is Ephesus was renowned for its paganism. In this city, there were about 50 different gods and goddesses that were worshipped there, the main one being the god Artemis, and they actually had kind of a cathedral to Artemis called the Tower of Artemis uh, that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, Artemis is also referred to as the worship of Earth Mother. Does that sound familiar today? Uh, not that I'm saying that this do, like isn't happening in the world, but kind of like the religion of uh, global warming is like we got to take care of Mother Earth and we've got to, like Captain Planet, you remember that? Like Mother Earth and stuff like that. There's theology in everything, guys, I'm telling you. And so, so Mother Earth worship was a big thing. And this city was a city that, as you're going to see today, was booming with magic, exorcisms, and demonic activity. A.T. Robertson says this about the city that Paul, we're going to see him in today. Here is Ephesus. Exorcists and other magicians had built an enormous vogue of false spiritualism, and Paul faces unforeseen forces of evil, like forces of evil like he's never dealt with. Uh, G. Campbell says this, The atmosphere of the city of Ephesus was electric with sorcery and incantations, with exorcists, and with all kinds of magical impostors. Basically, if I could put it in a very simple way, the city of Ephesus had a demonic stronghold in it that had a hold of it. Paul rolls into town, and what we're going to see is revival break out in the middle of this city that was very pagan. We're about to see God move 
in incredible ways. And what we're going to see today is a recipe, so to speak, for revival. In fact, that's the name of my sermon, Recipe for Revival. And all my points are going to start with an R. They're all alliterated. And some of you guys that are Baptists, you're about to have flashbacks to the churches you grew up in, okay? So hopefully you'll be able to remember it, take a picture at the end as we look at this recipe for revival. So let's start in Acts 19. We're going to start in 9b, the second part of verse 9. Now, now just to let you know this too, <clears throat> Paul has already been in Ephesus for a while. Uh, it, this isn't when he first got there. And he does what he always does, which we've seen him do every city he goes into. He goes to the synagogue. The Bible says in these earlier verses of uh, chapter 19 that he was persuasively uh, telling people about the gospel. People were starting to get saved and coming to know Jesus. And what always happened happened in this synagogue. People got jealous. And they started to malign what's called here in Acts 19, the way. Okay, So here he is. He, he leaves the synagogue, and it says this in Acts 19, 9b. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So he moves the church essentially from the synagogue to another place. In verse 10 it says, this went on for two years, his longest missionary stint. So that all, everybody say the word all with me, one, two, three, all. That's a very important word that has to do with our first point. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The first ingredient to the recipe for revival is the early church and the church in Ephesus and the Christians had a responsibility to God's word. In other words, they had a commitment to the preaching of the true gospel and God's word. There was a faithfulness to the Bible and God's word and the true gospel. And the early church in the city of Ephesus also had zeal in making sure that everyone they knew heard the word of the Lord, all the Jews and Greeks. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this point, but I will tell you that this passage, along with several others in Scripture, is one of the reasons several years ago our church changed things up and we stopped doing for lack of a better way of putting it, not that there's anything wrong with it, but we stopped doing gimmicky type, type sermon series and we started just preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse because we wanted to make sure that we weren't building the church on emotionalism or, again, some kind of gimmick or typical church culture type things. More on that as we get into some of the other points. Uh, we wanted to make God's Word the centerpiece for what we were doing. I'm a foodie. I love food. Anybody in here love food? I know it's the second service. It's pretty early, uh, but you're probably going to be itching to go eat after this, right? To put it another way that maybe we would understand, we want God's Word here at the church to be the main course, okay? God's Word and the preaching of God's Word and teaching of God's Word and reading of God's Word is not the French fries. It's the hamburger, so to speak. It's not the mashed potatoes. It's the steak, so to speak. It is not a side dish it is the main course, if that makes sense to everybody. And that's why we study through books of the Bible, because we believe that's the best way to do it corporately. And even on your own, we believe it's the best way to do it. Makes sense to everybody? Say amen. So a responsibility to God's word is what this church had in the city of Ephesus. And this is really a kind of Jesus is the cornerstone. But building on top of that, this is kind of the first ingredient we see that sparks revival in the city. Let's continue in verse 11 and look at the next ingredient. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. 
so that even handkerchiefs, listen to verse 12, this is a widely abused verse. Uh, you may have different views on this verse, and I'm going to do the best I can to offend everyone in here this weekend, okay? I'm going to try not to offend you, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack it, and I'm going to walk on eggshells, but I'm going to do the justice to the passage too. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. The second ingredient is remarkable miracles that we see happen. That's the ingredient of revival. We told you guys that the book of Acts encompasses around 30 years of the early church history. And while many preachers and teachers would like to make you think that there was miracles that were happening every single day and miracles can happen every single day now, really in the book of Acts, over a 30-year span, there are 29 different miracles that take place or clusters of miracles. 20 of those miracles were one-on-one with a singular person, and nine of those were in what we would refer to as clusters of miracles, and this is one of those clusters of miracles that takes place. In verse 11, in our translation, it says that extraordinary miracles take place. Uh, Another translation would say unusual miracles take place. That's kind of like an oxymoron, right? Because the fact that they're miracles means that they're extraordinary and they're unusual. Y'all know what I'm saying? I remember a few weeks ago when I told you if miracles did happen every day, they'd be called regulars, okay? So, so they're not regulars. They're, they're very extraordinary. They're very unusual. A better translation in the actual Greek of this phrase is there were works of power, not the ordinary ones. So these were miracles that were taking place that were not up for debate. This is like people that couldn't walk their whole life getting up and walking. Blind people that had been blind their whole life being able to see. Demons being cast out of people. These were extraordinary. These were unusual. These were not ordinary miracles that took place. In verse 12, again, I'm going to do the best I can to unpack this and because and, and, I understand that we've got different kinds of people in here, and our church is a Heinz 57, so to speak, and a mixture of a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. And some of you guys come from like a traditional background where just the fact that I'm wearing like a, a shirt without a collar is a stretch for you, right? But some of you guys come from a more Pentecostal background where maybe at some point in your Christian walk, somebody gave you a prayer cloth or a prayer handkerchief or a prayer apron or something like that. So I'm going to do the best I can to unpack this knowing that I may step on some toes and do justice uh, to this verse. Now, in verse 12, it says that they took handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched to sick people and they were healed. Don't read too much into this passage, okay? Nowhere does it say that Paul sanctioned this. Nowhere does it even tell us that God sanctioned this. The point of this is that God likes to work in new and unusual ways on the regular. And here God is, even in the midst of people's superstition, kneeling down in his mercy to meet people. God had never done something like this before in Scripture with handkerchiefs and aprons. He never did something like this since with handkerchiefs and aprons. But God met people in their superstitions to heal people. Now, 
I would give you a word of caution to be very careful when people pull this verse out of context. Allow me to explain it. I've known people in churches that love Jesus. They're strong Christians. And they will use prayer cloths or prayer aprons or prayer handkerchiefs. Maybe you've gotten one before from somebody. I have. And maybe they can't be with that person. And so they pray over a handkerchief, anoint it with oil, and they send it to them in prison or a missionary overseas. And when that person gets that handkerchief or that cloth... Every time they look at it, it reminds them of that person that's praying for them or that church that's praying for them, and that is totally fine. I get that. No big deal. That's kind of like wearing a Rev Church t-shirt out, right? Like That is no big deal whatsoever. What we need to be very careful of is going to the extreme with this verse. For instance, the Catholic Church historically has made a very big deal about what they call relics things that were owned by saints or priests. I see people shaking their head. Maybe you grew up Catholic. Uh, they've actually even taken like blood of different saints and putting it in a locket, put it in a locket, like a drop of a saint's blood. And it's said that if you have this locket and you're wearing it, then demons will be scared of you and go away. That's totally ridiculous and frankly, really gross. So amen, y'all, like it's really gross. So be very careful with these superstitious type things. I would also warn you on the other side of this that there are people and ministries that are for profit that use this to manipulate people. Uh, I've, getting, I've gotten uh, several letters from different ministries, and inside the letter there will be a prayer cloth with a letter that says, we're praying for you, we've prayed over this cloth, but always with those letters too is a request to sow a seed of faith. Send us some money. So be very careful with this because it's not that prayer cloths are necessarily bad, but like anything in Scripture, greedy people will pull out of context different Scriptures and manipulate it and twist it. Really, people that are charlatans. The big lesson in prayer cloths and prayer water and different things like that is we need to be careful that we don't just get fired up about things that are exciting, that seem to be kind of mystical, but that really lead to absolutely no life change. Does that make sense to everybody say amen? You know, prayer cloths are so cool, and and oh man, oh, oh, prayer water that somebody prayed for, that's so cool, but it leads to really no life change. You got to be very careful with those kinds of things. In fact, One of my favorite preachers that I watch pretty regular, I think his name is David Gulak. He's really, really good at expositing scripture. Um, And I think he's from up north. Um, He used this saying when he was explaining this scripture. And I've never heard this in the south. Maybe some of y'all have heard this. Uh, He said, it's not about how high you bounce. It's how straight you walk once you come down. Anybody ever heard that before? And that's the deal with like prayer cloths and different things like this. It's not about how high you bounce. It's about how straight you walk once you come down. In other words, it's not about how fired up emotionally you can get in a service. It's about how did that service impact your life in the long run. It's not about giving somebody a prayer cloth. It's about getting the word of God to someone so that it can transform their life in the long run. Make sense to everybody? Say amen. The church has been really good at causing people to bounce really high, in other words. But we haven't been very effective at making sure there's a responsibility to God's Word, 
that there's discipleship that's taking place. And really the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And you're going to see this in the next couple of points, that people walk away after they've bounced really high, they walk away totally changed by the gospel and the word of God. And so be careful uh, with this passage, but it is clear that one of the ingredients of revival, a recipe for revival, is remarkable miracles. Make sense to everybody? Everybody say amen. Nobody got up and walked out during that point. Praise Jesus, y'all, okay? It's really good. Verse 13, let's look at the next ingredient. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Sceva, a, a chief Jewish priest, Say that ten times. Seven sons of Sceva. Seven sons of Sceva. Seven sons. Say it with me. Seven sons. I'm just kidding, y'all. Okay, so that's, that's a tongue twister, though. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and listen to this, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you guys? Notice, just let me give you a little side point here. The enemy does not play games. They get right to the point. They say, hey, Jesus we know. Paul we know about. In other words, Jesus we definitely know because he's our main enemy. When they say, Paul, we know about, that's what's known as a cursory acquaintance in the Greek. In other words, Jesus is our main enemy. We've heard about Paul. There's kind of a brief superficial uh, connection to Jesus that Paul has, even though Jesus is the main ministry, Jesus is the main focus. And what they're saying is Paul is a casual secondary enemy. I don't know where I heard this quote, but it was something like this. I tried to find out who said it originally, and I have no idea who it is. But, but the one thing that this makes me think of when they say, Jesus we know, Paul we know about or we've heard about, it makes me wonder, like, I pray that my life is so effective for Christ that hell knows my name. I pray that my life is so effective for Christ that the enemy has a sigh of relief when I die and go to heaven. And I'm no longer messing up their plans. Does the enemy know your name? Has he ever heard about you? I mean, look, you're nothing. That's the point. You're, you're a superficial connection to Jesus. You're, you're a casual connection to Jesus, you know. But have they even mentioned your name? It says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then in verse 16 it says, Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And this is kind of humorous. Like, I love the Bible because there's humorous, like, stories in the Bible. Because it's been speculated that these are actually charlatans that are fake preachers, that they're just trying to make money off people because that was common in the city of Ephesus. I'll tell you that here in just a minute. But he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked. Everybody say naked with me. One, two, three. One more time. One, two, three. And bleeding. The visual of this is hilarious, right? Uh, it's interesting because the word bleeding is where we get our English word traumatized. They got whooped third ingredient isn't really a fun one and it doesn't sound real you know hyper spiritual and fun but the third ingredient to the recipe for revival is a reality of spiritual warfare the seven sons of Sceva while it's been debated was the 
Sceva even a chief priest? Were, were these just charlatans? Were they even Jews? Were they Christians? The most important thing that we can come to in a realization of this passage is clearly the seven sons of Sceva did not know Christ. Now, Jewish exorcists at this time were not uncommon. It was something that really there were some in every single city. In fact, there was a story in Matthew chapter 12 uh, where uh, the people accused Jesus, who was healing people and casting demons out, of doing it in a demon's name called Beelzebub. And Jesus replied to them in verse 27, If I drove out demons by Beelzebub, he says this, to, By whom do your people drive them out? Referring to Jewish exorcists. Well, these Jewish exorcists say, In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. In other words, they'd heard Paul's sermon but they didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. They knew the gist of what the church talked about. Does this sound familiar to some folks that might be in here right now? Like they, they knew like, like the deal and they kind of had the language down of the Jesus that Paul preaches, but they did not know Christ personally. See, even if the seven sons of Sceva are earnest in trying to help people and they want to cast demons out of people and see people get set free, the lesson here is you cannot combat evil apart from the Spirit of God. If you are going to confront evil but you don't know Jesus, you are going to get whooped like these guys. The lesson for the Christians in here is is if you're going to go up against spiritual warfare in your life, you better be prayed up, you better be studied up, and you better be following the leading of the Holy Spirit because if you aren't, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. I love the reality that we see here that uh, these demons... They know Jesus, they've heard about Paul, and really, they know their enemy. You know, I used to do uh, MMA a little bit. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's like UFC cage fighting, and I was so good at it, I had to quit and become a preacher, right? And so, uh, I'll still ground and pound you, though. Don't laugh at me, okay? So, I wasn't that good at it, and so I used to do that, and uh, I noticed that uh, fighters, when they're preparing for a fight with someone, what they do is they study their opponent, they watch tapes over and over and over and try to pick up on weaknesses and try to pick up on different things. Football players, this is why Peyton Manning was so good. He was renowned for studying the team that he was going to play and knowing exactly where they're going, exactly what they're doing. He walks up to the line of scrimmage. He's seen this on film a thousand times, and he knows to switch the play to this, and that's why he was so good. Football teams create an entire game plan off of what they've studied about who they're going up against. And man, demons do that to us, and the enemy does that to us. Actually, in the Bible, Satan is referred to as a roaring lion going to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. If you study lions, I know I've talked about this before, but if you studied lions, they're pretty smart. They study those antelope, man. They study, they study those wildebeests, and they know, hey, don't try to get a wildebeest when they're with the entire herd. Wait till a weak one breaks off. Wait till they've lowered their head to take a drink of water to pounce, not when they're in the strength of the herd. 
they know their enemy. And in this context, as I've told you, Jesus is the main enemy that they're up against. Paul is a casual secondary enemy, which you need to understand. Paul was not some superhero. Okay, y'all, like he's a great man. He's like the second most known Christian that there is, but he was a man. Many times when people preach about Paul, they make him seem like he was like Jesus Jr. and never sinned and never messed up. No, this makes it clear. Jesus is MJ. Paul is a D-league guard. Jesus is the Tom Brady of the spiritual realm, so to speak. Uh, Paul is a fourth-string quarterback that couldn't even cut it in college. You know what I'm saying? And so what they understand is... They know that the power flowing through Paul came directly from God, and Paul neither controlled nor directed this miracle activity. See, this miracle activity is causing revival to break out in one of the most paganistic cities of the day. And what we see here is when the enemy senses a balance of power shifting away from darkness and towards light, Satan fights harder than ever. And that's true not only in the city of Ephesus, by the way. That's true in your life. That's true in your marriage. All of a sudden, you start trying to do what Jesus tells you to do. The enemy's going to fight harder than ever. That's true in your family. That's true in your work. That's true in your church. That's true in your city. Y'all, I've been married 22 years. And uh, in 22 years, I still do this. And it blows my mind that in 22 years, there have been times that Brooke and I have been in a fight. And I didn't even know we were in a fight. (laughs) Any of the men in here, can you relate to this? You know what I'm saying? had no clue. She's mad for hours. She's mad for days. And I had no clue. And I've come up with a formula that I often share in pre-marriage counseling. So I'm going to give you a little bit of free pre-marriage counseling right now for the men because this has helped me and maybe this will help you. Uh, It's kind of five points for me to understand when Brooke and I might be in a fight, but I don't even realize it. So let me give you these four things that'll help you. Number one, She's silent, okay? That could be an indication that you're in a fight, okay, and you don't know it. Number two, she's yelling, okay? That could be an indication that you're in a fight. Um, Number three, she acts the same, okay? She's acting totally the same. Number four, she acts different, okay? That could be an indication. And number five is the best teller, she's murdered you, okay? Like, yeah, you're dead. Listen, y'all you got to understand that you're in a fight. You are in a fight. For all the time we spend about the weird Christians that make too big a deal about spiritual warfare and are always blaming Satan and saying there's a demon in every bush, overwhelming majority of people never even give spiritual warfare a thought in their everyday life. Don't even realize. Like, what the Bible teaches is We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings that are having a human experience. 
And everything we do does not just happen by happenstance. It is all spiritual. It's been said before that you'll never know what it's like to have somebody hate you until you own a cat. Cat. Did I say cow? Cat. They're evil. You know what I mean? They're minions of Satan, and they're, they're going to try to kill y'all. Y'all know that, right? I'm just kidding. If you have a cat, do not email me. This is just a joke. I'm trying to get your attention, okay? But really, we need to change that saying, you never know what it's like to have someone hate you until you get saved. And you need to recognize you are in a war. One of the recipes for revival taking place is understanding the reality of of spiritual warfare. doesn't give you an excuse to do dumb things and blame everything on the devil. I'm not saying that. We're going to do a spiritual warfare series in a couple of months where we're going to go through the armor of God like you've never heard it went through before. It's going to be awesome. But spiritual warfare is a reality. Let's look at our last point, verse 17. Y'all with me? Say, I am. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks, watch how Satan's plan to whoop these guys backfires and watch how God uses it. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Now, we need to make this, this is another scripture that's brought out of context. And churches used to have like CD burnings and record burnings and Elvis is the devil and stuff like that. None of this was forced. This was all voluntary, okay? This was all voluntary. Uh, so many of them confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scroll, thousand drachmas. The fourth ingredient is radical repentance. Really, it's two different things, radical repentance and radical renunciation. I should have added that one, but radical repentance. When it says the value <clears throat> came to 50,000 drachmas, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is offering a tangible measurement to help us grasp the impact the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel had on the church in Ephesus. He's showing us the major shift in values of the people that have professed Christ. It's radical repentance. I can remember in North Carolina, this guy got radically saved in the church that I was serving in. And he was telling me one day that the day he got saved... Um, and I'm going to try to explain this, so just hang with me. It's not just the day you get saved. It's a continuation process of sanctification. But the day he got saved, he told me that at home he had a Playboy collection. And in this Playboy collection was uh, some, some magazines that were actually worth money. They were collector's items. Like he had the OG, like Marilyn Monroe one and stuff. Don't go Google this stuff, okay, y'all? But like he had that. I'm making a point with this. He had that stuff, and he said the day he got saved... He didn't go sell those and get rid of them. He burned them in his grill. Radical repentance, man. In the Welsh revivals in 1904 in Welsh England, uh, this was really one of the last great revivals that there's ever been. Um, roughly about 100,000 people, they think, got saved during this revival. There were coal miners in the city of Welsh where... 
uh, or in the area of Welsh, uh, where they mined coal and they used to breed small ponies that would go into the small mines and help them bring the coal out. Well, when the Welsh revivals take, takes place, all the coal miners get saved. And for about a year, the coal production in Welsh, Welsh England almost drops to zero. And they, so, they go and try to investigate why did the coal production go down? Well, it's because those small ponies that they took into those mines to bring the coal out, the way they used to train them and get them to obey was they would beat them and cuss them. Well, all the coal miners got saved, and they quit beating the ponies and cussing at them. So when they were in the mine, the ponies didn't know what to do. They had to take a year to completely retrain them with commands and different things like that that wasn't cursing and beating the ponies. Radical repentance. See, one thing you'll find in Scripture, and this is what led me to get baptized a few years ago, is you can't find one example or Scripture to back up that when someone meets Jesus, they are not changed in some way. There is repentance that takes place. And you don't come in on a Sunday morning, kneel at an altar, say a sinner's prayer, and then go out Monday and forget it ever happened. We've got this broken system in America. You don't bow your head and close your eyes, and then you never even give thought to When you get saved and you meet Jesus, there is a radical 180-degree turn away from sin. Not that you don't still struggle with it, not that you won't still sin, not that you won't still mess up, but there is an effort on people's part to be sanctified. Repentance is not just when you're justified by Christ and get saved. Repentance, I believe, is also a continuing process as you're sanctified and try to become more like Jesus. question this weekend is, have you truly repented and followed Christ? <clears throat> not just raised in church, not just went to church. Like, have you been changed? Let me add on to this too. What in your life are you willing to renounce for the glory of Christ? What is it that you're willing to give up? See, I believe that if you're in relationship with God and Jesus, that you're going to go through time periods and you're going to be sanctified continually. And so you're constantly going to be doing things that Jesus tells you to do that you've never done before. And you're going to constantly be praying about things that maybe you need to stop doing that you've always done. What are you willing to renounce for Christ? I can remember when I first got saved, um, I watched a lot of horror movies when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, Michael Myers, the whole deal, all that stuff. I used to watch a lot of horror movies. Now, if you watch horror movies, I'm not saying you're going to hell. Okay, there's liberty for that, okay? Jesus didn't die so that we wouldn't know who Jason Voorhees is. Jesus died so people would go to heaven. But when I got saved, I felt like for me, and I do believe that watching you know, a movie is like watching a sermon. Watching TV is like watching a sermon. Everything is theological. That's why I quote theologians like ACDC and John Madden and stuff like that all the time up here, right? Because everything's theological, and you need to realize that. But for me, when I got saved, almost immediately I was like, man, I'm not, I, I didn't have a desire to watch that stuff anymore. I didn't want to see people get killed and stuff like that. But I also felt like the way that I could honor Christ was I'm not watching horror movies anymore. 
Very soon after I came to know Christ, I swore off alcoholic beer. Now listen, Scripture teaches, to make a long story short, that it's not sinful to drink alcohol unless you get drunk, right? We, we can agree on that. But for me, maybe for you, you can have a beer every once in a while. It's no big deal. But for me, I knew what I struggled with as a teenager, and I knew that I needed to renounce that in my life. I loved beer. Still do to this day. You know what I'm saying? And maybe God will release me one day, and I'll have one at your house with you. I don't know. Every time I go to a Fairfield house, they always offer me beer. Y'all know what I mean? Like, I'll never forget, I was, I was praying with a, a country guy once, and he, I told him my kids had a, a cough, and he was like, here, here, take this home with you. And it was a jar of local honey and a jar of moonshine. And I knew if I, if I refused that, I was going to offend him, so I took it home. And, uh, man, you could take wallpaper off of that moonshine, boy, I'm telling you. So, so you understand, this is not a legalistic thing. What I'm trying to tell you is, like, let me give you another example. Fasting. About five, six years ago, I started to really pray about fasting. I'd never really fasted before in my life. So now God, for certain periods of time, will have me fast from certain things, fast from food, renunciation. Does that make sense to everybody? And for every Christian, listen to me when I say this, for every Christian, there should be some element of renunciation in our lives. Some element of repentance also in our lives. Let's look at the last verse, verse uh, 20. And as I read this last verse, I'm almost done. I'm going to be done hopefully just a hair early. Um, I want you to realize that this last verse is a perfect working definition of revival. This last verse, this is revival. This is the Bible defining what revival is in the city of Ephesus. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. If I could translate this more closely to the Greek, it would say this. In this way, according to the mighty deeds of the Lord, the word was growing and prevailing. That's revival. The gospel is prevailing in people's lives. Lives are being changed. The word of God is growing in power. The big lesson I'll leave you with before we pray out is I want you to recognize that because of one person's obedience, an entire city is set on fire in revival. Fire is actually a bad thing. Usually in the scripture when you talk about fire, you're talking about God's judgment. We'll say like God rained down on the people in Ephesus to be more theologically correct. Paul walks into the city, is obedient to Jesus, and revival breaks out in the city of Ephesus. Could it be that there's somebody at Revolution Church that if you'll just be obedient to Jesus, you'll see revival in your marriage, in your family, in our church? It could be one person holding us back. It could be one person holding back revival in the city of Crossville. It could be you. You need to pray about it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for today. I thank you for the book of Acts. God, it's so rich. Help our church to continue to keep God's word the main course. God, please don't let it be about a preacher. Please don't let it be about some cool worship music or a cool building that we have or any of that stuff. None of that stuff is bad, God. But the main thing is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of your word. 
God, I pray for every single person in here. I pray for those that probably are in here that know the sermons. They know the Jesus that I preach about, but they don't know Jesus personally. I pray that your Holy Spirit does what only your Holy Spirit can do and that it convicts the hearts of those who don't know you and that as a result they run to you and they get saved and that their life is completely changed as a result. We love you, Lord. You are awesome and you are mighty. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes. 